Welcome home. You're listening to the 180 Church Podcast with Dr. Sammy and friends. Dr. Sammy and friends are resting this week and will return next week. However, we have a leader from our local church community giving today's message. Just want to give you a moment uh, to center yourself. Those in person and watching online, um, celebrating Father's Day, we pray that joy would be compounded today for fathers that are present and fathers who are in eternity. So if you bow your heads with me, just give you a moment of silence and solitude as we practice the rule of life. And exhale all the automatic ruminating thoughts that weigh us down in life. Their concerns that differ in degree, but they're properly out of our control. So will you give it to the one, the only one that's immutable and unchangeable? And he'll carry your burdens for you. And inhale the presence of God, his everlasting peace, the transcending peace of God. Right now. Sarah Young, Jesus Calling, June 20th. I speak to you continually. My nature is to communicate, though not always in words. I fling glorious sunset across the sky day after day. I speak in faces and voices of loved ones. I send a gentle breeze that refreshes and delights you. I speak softly in the depths of your spirit where I have taken up residence. You can find me in each moment when you have eyes that see and ears that hear. Ask my spirit to sharpen your spiritual eyesight in hearing. I rejoice each time you discover my presence. Practice looking and listening for me during quiet intervals. Gradually, you will find me more and more in these moments. You will seek me and find me when you seek me above all else. All God's people pray, amen. Now we welcome Paul. Okay, first slide. (laughs) Cool. Um, so picking up from the last sermon, uh, I talked about filial piety uh, and family, and uh, I recognized that I dumped a lot of history, a lot of context, um, but I didn't really offer any uh, practical steps for, towards <laughs> caring for parents and in-laws. So uh, to quickly summarize the last sermon, um, we talked about how Asian family dynamics are influenced by filial piety, Um, which served as the moral justification for obtaining authority within the family and by extension, society as a whole. Um, And that was juxtaposed or compared with a portrayal of family that reflects the image of God described in the creation narrative and uh, another portrayal of the family uh, that pulls together all of creation held together through Jesus. So uh, we compared Asian family dynamics with Old Testament and New Testament images of family. Um, Said another way, we compared a rules-based ethic of engaging with family and society uh, with an identity adoption-based ethic of engaging with family. And 
despite knowing these ideals, we still live in the reality where families aren't perfect and authority still gets abused and obedience is still demanded. And we need to work through our evolving relationship with our parents. So um, we're going to explore more of that today. All right, next slide. So as a young person, um, assuming we're all considering ourselves young people, uh, with aging parents, uh, how can I be a good steward to my parents? Uh, this was actually spurred on by a conversation that I had with Lee uh, two weeks ago. Uh, we were just texting each other. Uh, and he asked the vital question, what does it mean for me to be a good steward to my parents? Um, and, and so we're going to explore that. Um, and I hope that by unpacking the scripture today that we do explore that to a great degree. Um, so I guess to quickly define what stewardship means, uh, if you just look at the dictionary, it's defined as the careful and responsible management of something, um, either a property, an organization, or a business, entrusted to one's care. And typically, when we talk about stewardship, we default to financial stewardship. Uh, in today's passage, Luke 16, it also talks about financial stewardship. And I think uh, it's a very accessible way of approaching the topic of stewardship. And then we'll go on to other forms of stewardship. So we'll start there. Um, when you meet with the financial planner, um, I don't know, people in your 20s and 30s, I, I guess that's something that we do. Uh, when we start meeting with financial planners or money managers, typically you spend a lot of time uh, explaining your current financial situation uh, to this person. But more importantly, you spend a lot of time uh, sharing your financial goals and values. So basically, I don't know, first couple of sessions, all you're doing is talking about your goals and values. Why? Because a steward cannot responsibly guide a person or manage an asset without an intended purpose. Okay, so if you're not aligned on the purpose, you can't do it. Um, taking care of someone or something starts with a clear understanding of values and goals. And it would be great if all clients uh, clearly communicated their goals and values. If you could clearly communicate your goals and values, if your parents could clearly communicate their goals and values, that'd be great. Uh, but all stewards, advisors, and consultants would still need to clearly understand those goals and values because things get lost in translation. But oftentimes, the client can't articulate their goals. And even if they can, stewards misinterpret them. And uh, it's possible that the values just don't align. So they articulate it, you understand them, they just clash. Um, and oftentimes, there's something called a conflict of interest. So next slide. What is a conflict of interest? So it's a situation in which the aims or motivations of two, two different parties are incompatible. So usually because one party derives personal benefit uh, from decisions made in their official capacity. So I could be recommending one thing, but secretly I'm benefiting from that decision one way or another. And so that produces a conflict of interest. I'm gaining in some way. And so if my or my family's values don't align with my parents' values, or if I'm biased in some way, I cannot steward my parents' resources without causing discord uh, due to some competing thoughts or values. So uh, I'll, in my case, I'll constantly second guess their decisions and their intentions. Um, for example, if I think that my parents' goals for retirement are aspirational and they're not grounded in reality, I won't be able to take their opinion seriously. I'll be frustrated at their presumed lack of planning, and I won't be able to put forward my best effort at helping them 
Um, and that's just going to be natural because I, I, I can't give them any credibility in my head. Uh, and so this issue of establishing and aligning goals and values, um, experiencing conflicts of interest, and, uh, and so forth, these topics are at the heart of what I'd like to explore in today's passage. So we're going to go into today's passage. Next slide. Okay. Before I read this passage again, uh, some context. So the Pharisees think Jesus is being too generous and loose with who he associates with. Um, and Jesus responds with the parable of the lost coin, the lost sheep, the prodigal son, and then this parable. So uh, you have to kind of understand where this is coming uh, to us from. Uh, so Pharisees are judging him. They think he's too loose with, you know, he's hanging out with weird people. Uh, and so he talks about lost coin, lost sheep, prodigal son, and then he talks about this parable, the parable of the shrewd manager. Uh, also referred to as the parable of the dishonest manager. And when Jesus finishes this parable, uh, the Pharisees view him as having a ridiculous view of money, and they mock him. So I'll read the passage again, um, verse 1 through 7. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is it that I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot ma be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My manager's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his manager's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe the master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, make it 450. A uh, thousand bushels of wheat, he replied, uh, wait, uh, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. So uh, next slide, just to get the graphic onto the screen. Cool. Manager, rich man. All right. So in this parable, we have two characters. Um, they're the other debtors, but there's primarily two characters. We have the authority figure uh, identified as the rich man, and then the subordinate figure uh, identified as the manager, and a starting conflict. Uh, the, manage, the rich man is firing the manager because the manager is wasting his possessions. Now, there's no why or explanation of how this is coming to be, um, and so we can assume that that's not important. But the rich man is simply notices something and he's firing his manager. So when reading a parable like this one, we wanna, uh, we're aiming to understand the parable from three perspectives how the authority figure, or the rich man, evaluates the subordinate, how we, the audience, evaluates the subordinate, and the contrast between the authority's figure's evaluation of the subordinate and our evaluation of the subordinate. So it's three perspectives, our perspective, the rich man's perspective, and the comparison of the two. So what's happening? The authority figure brings about a crisis of decision, you're getting fired, to the subordinate figure. Uh, the subordinate has to make a decision about what to do on his last day as a manager. And what does he do? On his last day, the subordinate cooks the books. Uh, it's an accountant, accounting term. Uh, he looks through the list of accounts receivable, sets up meetings with debtors, dishes out loan forgiveness to win favor with other businesses. Uh, he cheats the rich man to secure his own future. Um, and if he's going to lose access to the rich man's money anyway, he might as well build relationships and earn favor while he can. 
And for his response, we credit this man as being shrewd. So shrewd just means he's being very clever uh, given his current situation, his current circumstance. Um, but, and just before we move on to the next point, by now you've already developed an opinion about this man. Keep that running in your head. All right, uh, next slide. Uh, so I'm gonna read the next section. Uh, the master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than, they, than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Okay, so going back, you would expect that the manager would be angry at this guy, right? Uh, dishonest manager, he clearly cheated him, he knows. Uh, and you would expect him to be really angry. He's still losing his job, that hasn't changed. Uh, but um, he commends him, which is a very odd response. Um, and so if our opinion was all the context we had, we would think that there's very little to learn from this parable. Um, just don't hire this manager, parable solved. Uh, but instead, the rich man commends him. And so there, there has to be something different. There, there's something deeper here. And the rich man's response is supposed to be jarring, which it is. Because despite the manager's dishonest behavior, there's something to be gleaned here. And in this moment of crisis, the dishonest manager is making a value decision and chooses relationships over money. Stick with that point for a second. So what's the point of the passage? The point isn't to commend the dishonesty of the manager, therefore go cheat people out of money and build relationships like Robin Hood. Don't do that. That's not what we're saying here. Uh, the manager who's about to get fired realizes that the most valuable thing in his situation was not the money that's going to be taken away, it's the relationships. And so this is an example of a categorically bad character that didn't let money keep him from the greater goal of pursuing and establishing relationships, okay? Um, instead, he secures his future by using the money as a means to build relationships. As the audience, we still have our own opinion here. Um, we're supposed to realize that his decision, while shrewd, even commended by the rich man, was still suboptimal. We're not praising him in any regard. Um, and at the end of the day, he's still a dishonest man who cheats uh, to get his way, and he's not an example that we blindly follow. Uh, but instead, by comparing our view and the master's view, uh, of the manager, the passage opens our eyes to consider this point. If untrustworthy people in this world who cheat each other still understand that money is just a means and not an end in itself, how much more should the children of God handle money as a means and not treat it as a God? How much more? And that's the point that I want to leave you with. So next verse, or next slide. Um, so we'll read uh, verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, or mammon. Uh, so we'll go into the topic of mammon. Uh, there's a, another concept that's being thrown into the passage very subtly, and that is the topic of mammon. Uh, the Aramaic word mammon is translated that in which one trusts. 
uh, or that in which you put your trust. Uh, and this term later in its history became a word that was used for money. Um, but in its original context, it's that in which one trusts. Uh, the comparison of God and mammon in verse 13 suggests that mammon can be thought of as a deity or a spiritual power that stands in com competition with God. But I would argue that the things we put our trust in doesn't stop with money, right? There's a lot of things that we put our trust in. And it really extends to anything that we choose to trust in instead of God. So to unpack this point, uh, I'm gonna like throw an entire different sermon in at you <laughs> at this point. Um, and so we're gonna talk about the nature of desire, the, under, uh, the underlying truths that we hold on to, understanding where desires come from, what desires make, uh, make it into our lifestyle, and what remains when it's all taken away. Um, so again, we're talking about desire here, or that in which one trusts. So next slide. So on the topic of desire, I wanna quickly explain this concept called mimetic desire. So it's the concept of mimetic desire. It was first popularized by uh, René Girard, which is a French literary critic and philosopher. Uh, it was, the concept was further developed by Luke Burgess. Um, Luke explains it this way, nearly everyone unconsciously assumes that there's a straight line between them and the things that they want. See diagram. Uh, for example, I wake up one day and suddenly decide I want to run a marathon. And amazingly, all my friends have a very similar epiphany too. Um, I convince myself that my desire is independent and autonomous. I want to pursue something because it just makes sense to me, or it's the right thing to do, or it's what I authentically want uh, or need to be happy. Um, and this happens beneath our conscious awareness. People rarely question why they want the things that they want. Uh, this assumption that my desires are my own, the story that I tell myself, is what Rene Girard calls the romantic lie. The lie is that I want things independently or that I choose all of the objects of my desire out of some kind of secret desire chamber in my heart, that I know a good thing when I see it, that I know what's inherently desirable uh, and what's not, unaided by anyone else. So let's explore that point. If my desires are not actually my own, and if I don't know what's inherently desirable, why do I end up desiring the things that I do? Uh, core to Rene Girard's belief is that the value of objects is not objective, it's subjective, and that subjective value is determined mimetically based on our relationships with others. So we could say that value is intersubjective, meaning we assign value to things according to what other people want. And I'll explain all of this in the next slide. All right. Next slide. Cool. Charizard. Um, we <laughs> select models of desire. Uh, so because value is assigned intersubjectively, meaning we get it from other people, uh, we select models of desire. Uh, it's people that we look to for guidance about what to want. For example, you walk into a store, see hundreds of shirts. Nothing jumps out at you. But the moment your friend becomes enamored with one specific shirt, it's no longer just a shirt on the rack. It's now the shirt that your friends chose. Um, the friend who studies fashion has a ton of followers on social. The moment she starts oogling that shirt, she sets it apart. It's a different shirt than it was five seconds ago um, before she started wanting it. So that's how quickly things change in our minds in terms of do I want it, do I not want it. 
Uh, and who are our models? It's the people whose lives we study in the news, in social media, it's in the ads that we see, it's in the books that we read, it's in the movies that we watch. They're all models of desire that tell us that if we only put our trust in owning this or reaching that, we'll be happy because we're on trend and that will solve our problems. And the further this model happens to be from my current reality, the more velvet ropes that exist between me and the model, uh, the more I'm able to daydream about how great it would be to have that one thing. So keep that in mind. Three call-outs before I move on from this topic. One, when we look at manias and market bubbles, so finance, uh, especially now with the recent drops in cryptos and NFTs, uh, one of the characteristics of a late bubble is when the herd, or mass people, uh, mimic a model that they don't fully understand. Uh, so people buying NFTs of poop. Uh, they don't understand why they own this thing, but they do. Uh, <laughs> go figure. Uh, and, <laughs> and the models themselves that we're following uh, are obscuring the true nature of the game. So they're playing a different game, uh, but they obscure that and, um, because everything gets curated by them. And people only see what you want them to see. Right? So it's a dangerous psychological game uh, that we play when people mimic others on the surface level and don't understand the real substantial decisions at work uh, that it took for them to arrive at where they're at. And it creates a vicious cycle. We covet the result and not the work. So stick with that point. Basically, we like to glom onto things on the surface level. We get on the hype train, but we don't necessarily want to do the work to get on that hype train. Uh, yes. So, point number two. I want to call out our parents. Oh. Yes, okay, yes, stay, stay here. I want to call out our parents. <laughs> our parents have modeled desires for us. Um, from the minute a baby leaves the womb, it's paying attention to what the mother looks at, which is also very interesting. Um, just a side point. Uh, humans are one of the only creatures with whites in their eyes. And uh, the reason for that is because we communicate a large degree uh, to each other non-verbally through what we look at uh, and how we look at things and how long we stare at things and things like that. And I mean, if you look at a dog, it, it mostly has like no, no white. <laughs> it's, it's all pupil uh, and uh, iris. Um, but we as a species have evolved so that we can actually look at each other's whites and, uh, and see what people are paying attention to. And babies from the get-go actually do this as well. Um, so if a mother's eyes are fixed on an object, the baby is instantly interested in that object after a few days. Um, and we ourselves as a species have not outgrown this. So we learn to value things, to put our trust in things that our parents value, like education, status, pension. Uh, and the weird thing, though, is that when we obtain the coveted degree, when uh, we get that dream job, and we find that we're actually not happy, we assume that we picked the wrong model to follow. So what do we do? We blame and scapegoat our parents because it's easier than owning up to our own choices. right? Um, so just a quick point that I wanted to make. Point three, I also wanted to call out the need for Jesus-following models in the church. If mimetic desire is truly the modus operandi, um, if I cannot value the things of God unless they are modeled by those who have gone before, 
I cannot desire a healthy household or family dynamic if I don't have visible models in my life that are worth aspiring towards, right? Um, and that applies to loving the community, it applies to making friends, it applies to desiring prayer, it applies to meditating on the word. We need people in our lives that model these desires. And we need to become the people that models these desires to others. Next slide. So why is this tangent, tangent important? <laughs> we will undoubtedly be confronted with billions of desires throughout our lives, um, but we won't necessarily act on all of these desires. We select the few desires that are especially desirable and realize them through discipline and ritual um, or through our actions. And it's through where we spend our energy, surrounding ourselves with positive models, setting up discipline and rituals, uh, where we can see where we really put our confidence in day and night. Um, Luke 16.13 states that we can only have one master, or that, which, that in which one trusts. Said another way, we can't sit on two chairs at once. Um, graphic. Uh, we can only really sit on one stool. And while all the other stools, while nice to have around in the house, that's not the one that we're currently sitting on. We're only sitting on one stool. Next slide. So I'm going to read the passage again. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. So I realize that this might sound a bit tone deaf given the potential recession, but if you are finding yourselves, uh, finding out that you're getting fired, what are you going to do? Like this man. If you're finding out that you're getting fired, what are you going to do? Jesus and his band of followers went town to town, teaching and celebrating, and leaving behind groups of followers, proclaiming, you'll be fired. The kingdom of God is near, right? And on these last days of employment, the kingdom of God forces a moment of decision in our, in our present, in our moment of reckoning. Will you choose what's greater? Will you align yourself with kingdom values? Or maybe, like the Pharisees, we don't realize that we've been fired. Um, we tell ourselves, what do you mean? I'm on trend. I'm upwardly mobile. I'm gainfully employed. I've got my assets set up just the way that I want. What do you mean I'm fired? Um, so I'll end with this question. Uh, Peace, Sam, if we could have you up here. Um, in what or who will you put your trust in this day? Right? At the end of the day, it's all about in what or who will you put your trust in this day? Thank you. Let's all stand. You know, it reminds me why Jesus said, Someone recently asked me, a seeker recently asked me the question, how can you reconcile the God of the New Testament um, who is embodied in expression and in tenderness and in kindness in Jesus to the God of wrath in the Old Testament? I said, well, that's really simple. And they were like, what? Simple? I was like, yeah, I was at Puka. It's like this fried chicken over here. 
let me just write up for you right real quick. Jesus said when he came in the New Testament, he said to his disciples and he, he said to the crowd, all those who come before me are thieves and robbers. I am the true shepherd. And no matter how close a model is to Jesus, Moses, he failed. Abraham, he failed really bad. David, he failed. Me, I will fail again and again. Sorry. People have told me my apologies are more powerful than statements I make. I don't know what that means. But what Jesus was saying is that who, who've come before me, if, if you want to get done something right, you got to do it yourself. And God himself incarnated and came to show the model that we're following. That's why it's important more than anything else to have the right model. And that's not any person. That's Jesus and the Father. The Trinitarian relationship. The Father, Son, and Spirit. The very Son. And without the Son, you couldn't even see. It's a reflection from light. Without light, we, nothing is visible. It would be complete darkness. So today, will you lift your hands with me and pray that you would see Jesus as your model to follow? And that's the funny thing, right? I don't think Jesus is, he was like intrigued with the Gucci bag. Jesus was a Palestinian rabbi, a Jew that was literally, did not have a home. He was dependent on followers that gave him food and housing. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords did not settle for security, but he was hung on a cross through kenosis. And I think Paul is giving us a really good model here. Jesus is challenged to us. What do you really value? Do you value me and follow me through a utilitarian lens because you want things from me? Or do you follow me because of me? The Trinitarian lens. So let's make this our song today, our prayer. Let's start with the bridge.
times the tension of our values is that it, it is inherently passed down mostly from our family and our peers and, and the culture. I mean, creation itself is dependent upon a Trinitarian relationship. If God was literally just one being, there would be no creation because there would be no construct of relationships. That's why when people have a hard time understanding why God is three, I'm just like, well, duh, I mean, if there was just one, you could never have a relationship. There'd be no construct of reality. And why values are inherent and interdependent is because without relationship, there would be no values either. It's what we share with one another. And that's why Jesus says in the challenge, he says, he gives young ruler the last commandments, the last six commandments between people, especially with our parents. But he leaves out the first four about our relationship with God because God is supposed to be first. Family could be second to honor our parents. It never says worship our parents or their values. And sometimes that's where the conflict is. We don't say we worship our parents, but inherently, yeah, we really want their approval. I mean, I'm Asian, and I'll admit it. I really want it. And I had it, but that's the conflict, right? We want to achieve what other people value, and that's the conflict with the gospel. What is God calling us toward, and what is pulling at us from inward, the values embedded to our, from our culture? And that's why we're laying it down. And that's part of the sanctification process, to lay it down. So is God first? Is he bay? I'm not talking about a romantic term. Right? Before all else. That's why the Christian life is a, you know, up and down journey. Sinuous and not linear. I think that's a lot to think about and dwell on where we are in our discipleship with Christ. And on Father's Day, who reigns supreme in your heart? The Father in heaven or, the, or other paternal figures and their voices? And that's the collision we're wrestling and grappling with. Will you bow your heads for the benediction? May the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. All God's people pray. Happy Father's Day. God bless you. Go in peace. So glad to see you all here. My name is Haley, and I'm a member here at 180 Church, and I will be sharing some community news with you. First off, let's talk about tithes and offering. If you're a member here at 180 Church, we ask that you continue to keep God at the center of your finances and to tithe faithfully, which you can do using Venmo, Zelle, Chase QuickPay, or PayPal. If you're a visitor here with us today, we welcome you to our service, and there's no financial obligation to give. But if you'd like to make a donation, you can do so with the methods above. Next, we have Bible Reading Group. We have an Instagram handle and a Tumblr page at 180BRG, where you can join us at any time to read the Bible. Feel free to follow along and feed your soul with the Word of God. Next, there are devotionals on sale at the 180 Cafe. They're great to help you get in the habit of praying and connecting with God every day. Sometimes I find it hard to find, form the words to pray, but these devotionals have been so helpful and inspirational. They're available at the 180 Cafe and it's an honor system. So you can purchase them via Venmo or QuickPay. Speaking of prayers, we have our prayer hotline. We invite you to use this resource to ask for prayer for anything or anyone in your life, and it's completely confidential. You can text 5397-PRAYER or email prayer at 180church.tv and know that there will be a team praying for you on the other end. Prayers are so powerful, and I can't tell you how many times my prayers were heard and answered. So I want to encourage you to get out there and pray and ask for prayer for where two or three are gathered in his name god is with them yes so let's talk about social media there these are the ways you can stay connected with us throughout the week we have several media outlets from facebook to instagram to dr sammy's twitter page and even our youtube page we are very active on social media and there are multiple ways to share the message with your friends and family and also stay connected in the community Let's not forget about our YouTube live stream. We know that things pop up and it's not always possible to physically attend Sunday service, but not to worry because Sunday service is being live streamed weekly on YouTube, so you never have to miss another service. So say hello to the YouTube viewers. Hello. And it's also a great way to share the gospel with friends and family. Next up is small groups. Small groups are a great way to process what you heard on Sundays with brothers and sisters along the journey of faith. We know that no one is meant to do faith alone, and small groups have been an amazing way to know that we are in this together. It's also a great way to um, get to know each other, grow deeper in, with, in relationship with each other, and reflect and apply sermons to our daily lives. And honestly, it's so much fun. I look forward to it every week to meet with the group and you know, we just have fun doing life together. So that's great. Um, adult groups meet on Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Young adult groups meet on Thursdays at 7.30 p.m. College Fellowship meets on Mondays at 7.30. And if you need any additional info, please speak to any of the greeters in 180 shirts or hoodies. Now, this is the exciting one. Are you, are you guys ready? Okay, I, I want to introduce 180 merch, okay? I know, you've been all waiting for this. 
It's not exclusive anymore. You can purchase your 180 merch at the 180 Cafe. There's a variety of tops in different fabulous colors, all donning the stylish 180 um, emblem and other cool designs. Like some of them have like cool designs on the back. Not mine, but others. Um, so you can get one of those. Uh, after service, you can head straight to the 180 Cafe to purchase your new 180 shirt, hoodie, or sweatshirt. And they can be purchased with the same honor system as the devotionals. If you have any questions, you can speak to our merch designer, Andy, wherever he is. Oh, he's in the back. There he is. Um, and he can help you. And I can't wait to twin with all of you once you purchase your merch. Okay. Next, we have Day in the Sun. Our next Day in the Sun will be on May 15th at 12.30 p.m. We will be meeting at the East Pintum in Central Park. So be on the lookout for an email to RSVP. Let's pray for beautiful May weather and an awesome time of fellowship. Also, let's start thinking about the people in our lives who we can invite and share the good news with. Uh, now, for those of you with the heart to serve or feel like you're being led to serve, we have children's ministry. We need volunteers to serve, love, and teach our church's youngest members. They are really doing meaningful and soul-filling work there. My children are learning that they are God's treasures, like I told you last time. And also my daughter always gets super excited for Sunday school. She says, oh, she loves Sunday school. So they're having a good time there. Um, they are building relationships and growing up in this community feeling loved and known. And that's really special. So if you want to be friends with our community's littlest members and be loved by me and other parents, go see Michelle Kim or Pastor Lydia for more details. Next, we have cafe volunteers. Coffee brings me so much joy, and I know it brings you guys joy too. So you can share some joy by serving up a cup of coffee before service. No barista skills are required. So if you want to serve or impress people with your latte art, please see Danny O or Wendy Lee for more details. And lastly, we have greeting volunteers. Who doesn't love a friendly face when they walk in? I know everybody does. And if you want to be that friendly face that brings smiles and makes people feel welcomed, this is for you. If you're interested, please see Danny O or Wendy Lee for more details. Now those are all of our announcements we have today.